This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The world of fintech is one of the more closely explored and watched areas of the finance industry. It's viewed as the future of financial services for things like mobile banking, cryptocurrency, investing services, and more. One of the goals is to make these services more available to the public in general. And one of the top finance journals, Review of Financial Studies, recently had a series of articles about the fintech industry. And these have some interesting implications about how fintech will change traditional banking. Itai Goldstein is a professor of economics and a professor of finance here at the Wharton School. He is also executive editor of the Review for, of Financial Studies. And he joins us here in studio to discuss these uh, these these uh, articles and the research. And also joining us is G. Andrew Caroli, who is deputy dean and dean of academic affairs at Cornell's Johnson School of Business. He's also the former editor of the Review of Financial Studies, and they co-led the FinTech Initiative. Great to see you again, Itai. Thank you for coming in. Sure. Good to see you. Thank you. Andrew, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Dan. I'm on. Thank you. It's great. Great to be with you. Thank you. I guess let's start by giving an overall understanding of FinTech and and what it is and what it all encompasses, Itai. Yeah. So uh, FinTech is really a a group of uh, technologies that have been emerging in recent years and are potentially going to completely reshape uh, the finance industry. I think what is really unique about uh, the the current fintech revolution is that a lot of these technologies are happening outside of the traditional finance sector. So basically you have a lot of uh, small, uh, young startup firms that are coming up with all sorts of ideas using all sorts of technologies to revolutionize the way finance is is working. If you think about what kind of technologies are uh, being part of, of fintech, because it's not just one technology, it's really a bunch of technologies, <clears throat> but you have the, the blockchain, uh, which uh, is going to change the way uh, people and institutions are, are tra- trading, exchanging assets. Uh, you have uh, the uh, f- uh, peer-to-peer lending or market-based lending, which is going to allow uh, a lot of uh, traditional lending to basically happen uh, online and not involve the big financial institutions. And and then you have uh, the, the b- big data, uh, we, which is the fact that we have a lot bigger data sets uh, these days and we have new techniques uh, to uh, to analyze them with machine learning and, and so on. Uh, and, and these are going to, to have a lot of other uh, applications on how finance is done. Where do you think then in all of those areas, where tends to be the greatest promise for fintech? Um, so I, I, I don't think one of them necessarily wins okay. against the other. I, I would say all of them have uh, great promises going forward and also potential obstacles. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, I think the same thing. I, I think uh, the market is showing, uh, showing the way it's voting with its feet. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars of new investments and thousands and thousands of deals that are um, coming to the fore with, uh, with fintech. Uh, so Itai has it exactly right. It's, it's sort of a scattershot across so many, uh, so many uh, aspects of the financial services industry that these new non-traditional players are coming up through the four. And there's no question there's, we're talking about tons of monies uh, going towards it. How much research, Andrew, is, is really being done on all of these different uh, technologies and ideas coming forward? Well, I think that's that's the question of the hour. Uh, in fact, uh, when uh, Itai and I were uh, and Wei Zhang, our colleague at Columbia, were sitting down and 
discussing uh, these developments that are happening outside of our our windows and looking out into the world and seeing all of this investment activity, we were we were absolutely struck by the fact that there was such a dearth of research on this topic, right? Um, and that uh, and that we we felt like we we needed to do something to stoke to stoke it. Um, and and it, you know we part of the exercise for us uh, was trying to understand what it was that our you know many young scholars out there in the finance. Uh, financial economics world, what, what was deterring them from actually pursuing opportunities to do research on these uh, super cool topics and, uh, and uh, you know, where there's clearly a lot of development activity happening out there? Itai? Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, you, you know, uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, when we got started on this, uh, you used to go to like conferences at the Fed with practitioners, with regulators, and everyone was talking about uh, fintech and the upcoming revolution. Uh, but then they would always say, you know, it's kind of a shame that there isn't much academic research going on. And this is where we sat down and said, okay, we as one of the top journals in, in finance, we have to take a lead on that and get the academic community a bit more involved. And then we came up with this initiative to call for proposals and ask people to, to tell us what they could do research on and, and, and then pursue it from there. So tell us more about the, the, the papers that were actually included in this in this particular issue. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, when we started, we, we ended up getting like 160 uh, proposals uh, that we narrowed down uh, with a very rigorous process uh, to, to 10 uh, proposals that we ended up accepting and eventually are coming out in, in the special issue. And they really touch on the wide variety of issues with uh, fintech. So we have uh, four papers that talk about blockchain uh, we have four papers that talk about peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, market-based lending, uh, and, 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 and issues around that, and also a couple of papers that are uh, centered on big data. Well, Andrew, in, you know, the, in the variety of papers that are involved here, uh, there are some 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 bits of information, some surprising results, and, and one involves Bitcoin. Uh, one of the papers estimating that about 40%, 6%, almost half of the Bitcoin transactions are linked to illicit activities, but that it is declining over time. Why do you think this is the case right now? Well, that was a, that was a, a real eye popper um, when that paper was, uh, was proposed to us. Of course, they, uh, it was before they had actually executed their analysis. Yeah. And they came up with a very interesting research protocol to try to uncover what fraction of total transactions activity in Bitcoin was related to illegal activities. Um, uh, frankly, the methodology underlying it is as fascinating as the result, although the result is, is, is clearly eye-popping. But they had actually um, obtained data through a sort of a, uh, a sweep of the web um, of transactions that are actually taking place through some of these dark websites known as the Silk Road. And they actually used some uh, machine learning techniques, a, 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 a network cluster analysis technique to try to link activities in real time, um, transactions on the Silk Road to um, events happening in Bitcoin. So they're looking actually through the Bitcoin, the blockchain of Bitcoin, try to identify events that were happening there, linking it to transactions in the Silk Road. And from that, they were able to extrapolate into the broader uh, broader uh, period of analysis to uncover this this 46 percent. It's a it's a super interesting research protocol, and it really makes us all ca causes us pause uh, to think about exactly who is participating 
in terms of Bitcoin transactions activity um, and uh, what, what, what sort of drives it all. I think many people have strong priors about, uh, about this world as to what it fosters and what it enables. Um, but I think that this number, you know, believe it or not, as a number goes, um, but the fact is that, that the amount of activity that may very well be an illegal share um, is, uh, is, is strikingly higher than we ever would have thought, I think, beforehand. Ita? Yeah, l- let me just add that I, I, I think whenever there is a new technology, uh, people who are dealing with criminal activity see it as an opportunity uh, to use that technology to hide their activities. Because, you know, if you think about how you want to channel money traditionally, uh, banks have all sorts of restrictions uh, that have been imposed over the years with experience. And now people who deal with criminal activity, they say, okay, so we don't need to go through these routes anymore yeah, with yeah. all these obstacles and we can just use this, uh, this technology. So, so I think initially, as the paper says, you know, uh, illegal activity was really uh, very prominent on, on Bitcoin. I think over time, uh, it sort of decreased as a relative share because, first of all, Bitcoin became more popular and people started seeing that maybe there are other uh, things you can use Bitcoin for. And, and second, I think people also started realizing that maybe at the end of the day, it's not the ideal way to hide uh, criminal activity, given, given that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, with Bitcoin, with blockchain in general, you, you have a permanent record on everything. And, and maybe at the end of the day, it's actually not the best thing to use for uh, illegal activity. You know, Andrew, uh, one of the papers on fintech lenders uh, showed that they're actually not targeting people who don't necessarily have traditional credit. They're not making more accessibility to the unbanked. Instead, they're, they're actually competing with traditional lenders. Do you agree with that? And then also, what are the consequences? Well, I think, I think the consequences are many, and that's where your mind automatically goes. Uh, we had three papers that actually looked at different dimensions of online uh, and peer-to-peer lending platforms to see where and how they're competing uh, with the incumbents. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, some people estimated to be much larger than, than, than uh, expected, some more modest. Um, uh, there are three papers that basically focus on all of this. And I, I love that it stokes the debate, uh, the, the debate uh, Dan. I think that's more important than the answers in, in this particular instance, because we're, we're talking about a, a sort of a dynamically evolving, um, d- dynamically evolving uh, competition among the incumbents and the and the new uh, the new arrivals uh, in this industry, but but you know the, the the implications are really the most interesting thing. And I know I know Itai and I uh, and Wei have had lots of conversations about about where we think this is going to go. Um, regulation, for example, is one. Um, yeah. What, where, what what is the what is the sort of the long run um, equilibrium that we see in terms of the competition between these these upstart non traditional participants in online and peer-to-peer lending platforms, um, is it going to be that the incumbents, being the large behemoths that they are, will take these new, uh, the new upstarts over and just sort of acquire them in, or they'll, maybe they'll innovate to supplant them and push them out? Um, and then thinking about how the government's oversight responsibilities for this sort of, uh, sort of evolving uh, landscape, yeah, it's just fascinating to think about, and uh, none of us really have answers. But uh, but we know we know we need more smart people to be thinking and asking and answering questions about it. Itai, uh, yeah, you know I agree that the implications are, are very interesting. Uh, I mean th- this particular study, you know, when when you think about 
fintech lenders maybe not reaching out to the unserved uh, population, but rather competing on the same population with the traditional financial institution. At the end of the day, you know, it is a little disappointing as an implication going forward for Uh, for fintech because one would hope that what fintech brings into the table is to basically expand the population that is being served right and and when you see that maybe this is not happening to the extent that you would uh, expect uh, this is a little disappointing but I don't think that's the last word and I think that's exactly what Andrew says uh, I mean th- this is one paper that shows that there are other papers uh, around that and and there is an active debate on right now on where exactly it is going and whether they are expanding the population that is being served or just competing on the same population. But I, I think that's, a, that's an important question to ask because when you think about the people that do have the ability to have various banking services compared to the ones that, that don't, you're talking about, I, I would think, a relatively significant number, you know, percentage of, even here in the United States, of people that don't have The access to to banking services yes absolutely and and this is one of the biggest hopes with fintech uh, because the unbanked population is is huge it's big even in the United States but if you think worldwide it, it is it is really big and and the whole idea about fintech is that uh, you, you know these fintech lenders will be able to reach uh, bigger populations in particular also because a lot of these services could be provided with cell phone and Uh, you know many people out there have cell phones more yeah. people have cell phones than bank accounts perhaps and and as a result this is how you can basically reach those populations and and expand the services um, I think that you know at the end of the day my, my take on it would be that the jury is still out on whether the fintech lenders are going to expand the population or or just focus on the same population and, and compete and and drive out at the traditional financial institutions one would certainly hope and this is the main thing Uh, s- selling point of, of fintech is that they would be able to expand uh, the outreach and, and, and reach more uh, people Andrew? I know I was good I, I couldn't agree more with everything that Itai said for me uh, particularly the the most acute uh, point that uh, Itai made was was uh, as interesting as these results are and they are very much u.s context specific and that is great and we're very fortunate for that uh, the fact is that these issues are even more more uh, acutely important in the world outside particularly in less developed countries and the emerging markets where uh, where the, the you know the mobile banking network is just not has just not uh, become as much of a presence uh, and uh, I think there are a lot of open questions for those markets for those that are regulating those markets as to just how effective fintech uh, peer-to-peer online uh, marketplace lend marketplace based lending platforms can really deliver the goods uh, in those types of markets and, and that's part of an even larger question uh, Andrew when you think about the global economy and and the growth that I, I think a lot of people expect to see from some of these locations that haven't been a, as prominent on the on the economic scale over the last couple of decades exactly exactly and I I uh, I you know, I Itai and I and way in our editorial that fronts the special issue what we one of the big calls for future research is to really understand this uh, as as interesting as the US is to study and it's important there's no question about it but to really push the frontiers and look for unique settings in in terms of analysis outside of the US into some of these areas Uh, emerging markets to really understand the potential of fintech that's that that's really exciting and so then that I think etai plays on 
the question of, of how much of an impact these types of services are already having in other countries around the world at, at this point and how much farther they can grow to be able to be an impact in places like Europe or Africa or Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, traditionally, the U.S. was really at the at, at the front of the financial in- industry and financial development in general. And uh, people like us who do research on finance, you know, one thing that we see is that almost all the research that is being done is done in the U.S. because it has been so dominant uh, in terms of, of the financial sector. What you see with fintech is really opposite uh, because, uh, you know, we have to admit that the U.S. is not at the frontier of of fintech. There is a lot of activity going on here in the U.S., but it's not at the frontier. Uh, You know, the frontier may be China. Um, uh, When you think about what's going on now with China, a lot of the fintech uh, firms, a lot of the uh, fintech uh, applications are now actually being developed and and being used in in China. Uh, I think in, in China... Uh, fintech has been able to reach to a, a much wider population. And, and you see exactly what I was describing before, people paying with their uh, cell phones all, all the time. Uh, this, is, this is now the way to do business in China. And in the U.S., still not quite uh, the case. Um, so, so certainly what, what that is doing is to, to open uh, the door and, and sort of for us as finance scholars and everyone else also look into the, the wider world and, and see what, what's happening there. Uh, and and maybe take uh, take some cue f- from from that and 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 use that in order to help the development of fintech here in in the U.S. Andrew, yeah, agreed. Uh, China may be the uh, where is is maximally in our sights because we're literally seeing uh, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of new peer to peer online uh, lending platforms that are just taking off. Many of them, of course, are failing. It's almost like a, a sort of a, an organic the ultimate organic uh, sort of world of creative destruction that's happening in China with respect to these online lending platforms. Fascinating, worthy of study and understanding, um, and definitely, definitely incredibly important. And by the way, not just online mobile banking, but also mobile uh, security services now uh, is just sort of taking off in a big way in countries like China. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a little bit like uh, the development of infrastructure, if you think. For many years, the U.S. was at the front, sure, yeah. uh, but everything was already here. And then when new developments came, now China took over. And now China, in, in some sense, in, in many infrastructure is, is more developed than, than the U.S. You see the same thing with fintech. Because the financial industry here was so developed, at the end of the day, the need for innovation was uh, not as big. Uh, whereas in China, they were behind. The need for innovation was bigger, and it took off much more quickly. So you're talking, uh, Andrew, not only about disrupting various traditional financial services that have you know, been the core here in the United States and other parts of the world for, for decades. You're talking about significant disruption of all kinds of different sectors around the globe. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one of the studies um, in the actual special volume looks at, now it's again a U.S.-specific study, but it actually looks at where the innovation is. They actually look at patent filings that are fintech, financial technology-related, uh, over about a 15-year period. And one of the most, uh, intri- and they, they basically use, uh, again, fancy statistical techniques to sort of cluster the kinds of things that we call fintech. And what they did was they actually looked at not only the share price responses for those public companies that are associated with those innovations, um, but they were actually looking at 
the spillover effects to the incumbent firms. And one of the magical things about that study is, is how there was a differential disruption to the incumbents across the different kinds of segments. It reminds us all that fintech is much more than just peer-to-peer lending or just blockchain technology or just the Internet of Things or robo-advising. It's sort of a, a panoply of, of many, many different functions. Each of them can have disruptive influences and differentially so. Uh, fascinating learning from that one particular study. How important, Itai, then, as we move forward, and you mentioned having 160 proposals that that came to you uh, for this project, how important is it then to continue seeing this research develop and continue to take it to the next steps that that need to go? Oh, I think it's hugely important. Um, I think that the academic community has to continue and, and look into these issues and explore them and investigate them. And I think it's important to do it both empirically and theoretically. I think empirically, you know, there are a lot of new data sets that, that are coming up and people can start uh, analyzing them and seeing the, the trends that we can see with fintech. Uh, but also theoretically to take a step back and sort of think about the conceptual framework that we have uh, for thinking about the financial industry and financial activity and seeing how fintech fits into it, how much of it is new, how much of it is basically uh, repeating things that we have seen in the past. But but I think that the academic community is absolutely crucial uh, to, to understand these issues. And and I think, you, you know, optimistically going forward, I do see it happening. Uh, as I said, when we sort of got started with it two and a half years ago, uh, there was really not much research on fintech in the academic community. I think people were very risk averse. Yeah. They thought that this is a new topic. Maybe they shouldn't really spend Uh, their effort on it. Uh, But nowadays, when you go to the academic conferences, you know, they are populated with fintech research. Andrew? Yeah, we know exactly right. And there's one thing about this that uh, is also exciting for me is that that traditional scholars in the field of finance or financial economics are seeing how important it is to engage in interdisciplinary research collaboration with uh, with other scholars outside of finance. Right. specifically data scientists and computer scientists. To me, now, some of them figured that out quite early on. The most more successful proposals were those that were already sort of thinking that that kind of collaboration is important. But I actually think that's, that may be the one thing that Itai Wei and I may have triggered is that it's okay and a really good idea to go talk to those people across campus that are actually working on these these advanced technologies in terms of machine learning yeah. and, uh, and understanding sort of the infrastructure of these blockchain systems uh, to, really, to really get the <laughs> institutional details down and know how, to, know how to push the frontier. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Andrew, all the best. All the best to you, Dan. And Itai, of course, a pleasure. Yeah. Itai, great having you here. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Bye-bye. Itai Goldstein from uh, here at the Wharton School, Andrew Caroli at uh, Cornell University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.